Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. This is the word of God. Let's pray for a moment. Sovereign Lord, we thank you for the privilege of life, and we thank you for the privilege of having your word in our language. And we pray that in your mercy we might understand it, and we pray that in your mercy we might live it, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Just three thoughts tonight. The first is really weird, just so you know where I'm going. The second is, so what has that got to do with me? And the third is our world. I'm sure if we were to go around the room tonight and collect unusual or weird stories, we might collect some quite interesting ones. I'm not sure that any of us would match the, the pet anteater in a kennel in the living room, but, you know, who knows? Uh, with a group of this size, with the life experience in this room, we'd collect some interesting stories. Here are just a few examples of weird pictures that I found online. Catherine's going to show them. Isn't that weird? Just eight pictures. How do you get a car like that? How does it get there, for goodness sake? How do you get it down afterwards, I suppose? I wonder what the insurance said about that one. <laughs> yeah, I don't quite know how that... Oh, that's a good way of mending your car. Unless it's a surfboard. I'm not quite sure what it is. Interesting. 
<laughs> Bend it like Beckham, maybe, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I think maybe they're Dutch football supporters, but I'm not absolutely sure. Is a, a Bedino or, or... Yeah. No pet anteater, but... <laughs> Yeah, no words for that one, really. I can't think of anything sensible to say. I think maybe there's one more. Oh, no, that was it. That's it. Okay, so some really weird things. But there is something really weird that many of us, have, many of us in this room tonight have discovered, and it is this. It's what the Bible has to tell us about God, about this supreme being for whom there was no word in Inklet what he's like and what he does. And what the Bible tells us about God is actually very, very unexpected. I suspect that if we were to go around the room again tonight, go around church tonight, and extrapolate God from the way that the world is, most of us wouldn't end up with the good and loving and merciful and gracious God that the Bible tells us about. Or if the romantic among us were to try to project some kind of wish fulfillment, it would certainly not be the Bible's righteous and judging God who cannot bear human evil. And none of us would have dreamt up the idea of this living, all-powerful, all-present, eternal, immortal God deciding to manifest himself most clearly as a weak, dependent, vulnerable mortal, whose primary reason for being on earth was to die on behalf of others. None of us would have thought of that. When the gods come down in any great religious mythology, it's usually in great power, and it's never so that they can be treated as a well, let, 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 let's take it as, let's, let's try and be contemporary. To be treated as a kind of rabid fundamentalist terrorist who just needs nailing up. There's a sense, I suppose, in which Jesus fell foul of the empires, the Roman Empire's war on terror. So what on earth is this Jesus thing all about? I suppose one way of describing this term's Sunday evening services service series, is to say that it has been exploring that question. And this evening we'll do that again as the series draws towards its end by simply focusing on three words in the Bible with a brief reference to their context. And they are in this section that Will just read to us in John 3, verses 1 to 21. Jesus is clearly a figure who attracts huge interest. Uh, on the one hand, and, and fascination, interest and fascination on the one hand, and anger on the other. And here in this, in this record, a leading religious figure comes and shows this carpenter extraordinary respect. Verse 2, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. And then he's very surprised, both theologically and personally, by the extraordinary response. Because Jesus' answer starts with this birth business, and his listener doesn't get it at all. Uh, in fact, there's this almost scientific, literal reaction in verse 4. How can anyone be born in old age, Nicodemus asked. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. 
So Jesus starts to unpack it all a bit more and explain what he means by this with lots of references back to the Hebrew Scriptures in verses 5 and following, uh, which still leave this very bright bright man very unclear in verse 9. How can this be, Nicodemus asked? You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. Of course, we sophisticated northern Europeans, 21 centuries later, we know exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says uh, in these words, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. Or verses 5 and following when he speaks about being born of water and the Spirit. And you shouldn't be surprised in verse 7. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. We know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about some modern American form of religion to do with born-agains. That's what he's talking about. (laughs) Seriously, I, I suspect we are in some danger of missing the point because of our natural cynicism. Just as he missed the point in some ways, this Nicodemus, this great ethical teacher, this great theologian of the time, because it's actually not immediately obvious to us either when we first read this what Jesus means. What does it mean to be born again? Maybe you're here tonight and you've been going to the Alpha courses and you're, the Alpha course and you're, you're at a stage in, in the course where you're kind of asking serious questions about life and death and the meaning of life and where life can truly be found. And people are telling you it's found in this Jesus, this Christ. And you kind of don't quite get that yet. But Jesus is saying, here, in me, through me, there is a way of receiving life. Verse 13 and following, he talks about having come down from heaven. And then he talks, refers to an old story recorded in the Hebrew Scriptures in verse 14 where he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And it's a reference to an incident in in Moses' life where uh, people were dying because of the plague and the living God had Moses do something, lift up a snake, make make a a kind of image that would, uh, when people looked to this this thing that Moses, this snake that Moses lifted up, then they would be made well. And Jesus is using that analogy, that picture, to refer to the kind of way he's going to die when he's lifted up and nailed to a cross. And through the cross, through this incident in the Old Testament and the actual event of the cross, uh, he says the incident in the Old Testament points to him. He says there are then real answers to the biggest questions of life and death. Verse 15, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And then you get one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's extraordinary. It's all about the amazing love of God in Christ. Love flowing out from heaven through Jesus' life and death, which we'll be celebrating again this evening in the communion, bringing life and hope. I'm a little personally a little distracted this weekend because um, my wife's, Jane's dad, is very, very unwell. In fact, he's, he's 92, he has Parkinson's, he's been in hospital for a month, and we've been at his deathbed this weekend, and uh, he's close to the end of his life.
Uh, death is a reality in life. Uh, I've just read a book called um, A Thorn in the Flesh by a clinical psychiatrist by, called Pablo Martinez, personal friend from Spain. And he says this, There is ample evidence in the Bible to affirm that not only did God suffer in Christ, but he continues to suffer with his people today. The cross. Jesus points to the cross in the communion and in this verse where he speaks about being lifted up. Pablo Martinez goes on to say, As someone has said, an impassive God would be an infinite iceberg of metaphysics. The idea of a suffering God, this Christ raised up on a cross, is exclusive to Christianity. It's not found in any other religion. Buddha, for example, appears before us as someone with a cold, priestly gaze. With his arms crossed, he communicates an immense sensation of distance and impassiveness. What a contrast with the Christ of the cross. And then Pablo Martinez goes on to say this, The final answer to the enigma of suffering is not found in intellectual debate, but in the personal encounter with Christ suffering on the cross. What kind of weird message is this? It's not funny like the pictures that we looked at, which were lighthearted and sometimes restore our sanity, a little bit of humor, and when we're under pressure... This is the most serious message ever, and it's totally, totally unexpected. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son, so that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. And that brings us then to the second point. So what's that got to do with me? I mean, I hope it's obvious, because it has everything to do with all of us. Again, if you're on the Alpha course, or if you're starting to attend church... Just a reminder that this is about discovering the love of God in Christ for the first time. And please do talk to the friend you came with this evening or talk to your alpha small group leader or someone else you trust about what to do with these, this extraordinary information. For the rest of us who are Christians, I hope that it's also really obvious what this has to do with me. Because the love of God is surely a prime motivator for us all in our lives. What keeps you going for 25 years, translating this book into an obscure language in a place where, for 24 of them, if I understood correctly, you don't have air conditioning in temperatures of 35 or 40 degrees? Part of it is this love of God in Christ that motivates. But here's the weird thing. Back to the weird thing. Lots of us, even those of us who are motivated by the love of God in Christ, we fail to see the object of the verb. We see the God bit, we've begun to grasp something about the love bit, but what about the world bit? For God so loved the world. It's right that we personalize it, because it, the, the, the rest of the verse is, is, is hugely personal. So that whoever believes in him, and that's about you and about me, and about the uh, Inklet Indians, and about the masses of Mexico City, and about the people of Oxford, personally, quite personally. But the object of the verb is actually the world. Because God's love is not only available for me and my ethnic group, or my class, or my age group, 
God's love is for people of every age and class and ethnicity of the whole world. So God's love compels us to reflect him to and share him with others around us and to be prepared to do that far and wide across all sorts of cultural and other barriers. Remember in this text, Jesus spoke to us about having come down from heaven to earth, having left the beauty of heaven to come down to the mess of earth. He, he speaks to us about having come in the course of his life from an ever-perfect relationship with the Father to a place where he strangely and mysteriously absorbed God's anger against sin and somehow mysteriously was separated from the Father. And that's what we celebrate in the communion. Jesus crossed every barrier known to humanity and some. So the really weird, what's that got to do with me? And then our world. Our world, the world full of people whom God so loved, is a world of huge need, which in many, many places is full of great ignorance about the love of God in Christ. Do you know, for example, that in Afghanistan, which is a nation, estimated population of about 25 million, there are an an estimated 1 to 2,000 Christian people in the Afghan population. In Austria, where we had the privilege of living and working for a number of years, I actually came to a living and personal faith in Christ in in Vienna, in Austria, and I'm deeply grateful to God for Austria. It has a population of about 8 million, with perhaps 50,000 evangelical believers in a notionally Roman Catholic country, half in Lutheran churches and half in independent churches. Austria. Uh, one of the things about living in Austria is that if, if you, you have far fewer opportunities to meet somebody who really believes this stuff about the love of God in Christ personally and believes it's for the whole world. Because, for example, like in the C- Christian Union in, in Vienna, 100,000 students, there are probably something around 50 students in the uh, Christian Union group, the equivalent to Christian Union. Tiny. How many are in OIQ at the moment, Andrew? Do you know? 300? In the college groups altogether? In one university city? How many students in in Oxford? 20,000. This is just a small comparison. Belgium is not a very exciting sounding place. Uh, It has a little bit of difficulty agreeing about how to form a government between the two language groupings, as as you know. It's uh, close, not terribly exotic, not quite as exotic as Paraguay sounds. Uh, But in this complicated little country, did you know that there are more Muslims than Protestants? In Belgium, (laughs) uh, the Protestants together form about 0.5% of the population. China is a little larger than Belgium, with about 1.3 billion people and massive church growth. But there are huge opportunities for professionals to serve in this exciting and sometimes difficult country. 
Greece has a, just taking some, some examples from around the world, alphabetically, you'll be glad to know, we'll get to the Zs soon. Greece has a population of about 10,000 Protestants among its 10 million inhabitants. And the Protestants, like every other faith minority, are seriously disadvantaged under the law. Pakistan, all those with the label Christian, all of those with the label Christian, make up a total of 0.33% of the population and are under serious pressure with difficulties like the notorious blasphemy law and so on. According to the latest figures, reliable figures I could find for Serbia, evangelical Protestants form some 0.15% of the population. I had the privilege of being in Spain last weekend. Spain is a, a you know, great nation. Many of us have been there on holiday. Wonderful scenery, lots of history, great food. They do eat a bit late, don't they? It's the kind of main meal at half past ten at night. I'm not terribly good at that. Did you know there are in this great country something around 300,000 prostitutes, they reckon? As a comparison, just out of interest, there are about 300,000 Protestants also, of whom about 100,000 are Spanish, and the rest are foreigners, mostly Latin Americans, very vibrant community, but 100,000 Spanish Protestants roughly. Zimbabwe has experienced massive church growth, but we all know about the desperate situation in the country. And it's an example of the kind of country that desperately needs the kind of help that Langham Partnership and CMS and others can offer. And we've been hearing about specific needs in the Democratic Republic of Congo and Kenya and Sierra Leone, in which our giving this month can make a difference. The point is this. If we've truly begun to get to know the living God and the love of God in Christ, this God who has revealed himself in Scripture, then we need to begin to understand that mission is in his DNA. He has taken the initiative, sent his son. He has taken the initiative, come from heaven to earth. If he hadn't, we wouldn't any of us be here. So if we are his children if we have been, as Jesus puts it, born again, we have received his life in us by his spirit, then we need to nurture his life within our lives so that we become more like him. And, and that inevitably means nurturing an interest in mission here among our own people and with others in our neighborhoods and so on and in the world. I love the slogan on the, the social responsibility groups uh, uh, board on the back there. It talks about our city, our country, and our world, I think, at the top. Something like that. I was just looking at that while we were getting the DVD and everything sorted out earlier. For some of us, understanding the love of God in Christ and how it's for the world will mean being prepared to serve him in another place or with another people group, perhaps with international students or with ethnic minorities or with older people or with younger people or with people of a different socioeconomic grouping to our own, or possibly even in another country. But the point is this, and it's very simple. Forgive me if this has been far too simple for a Sunday night at St. Andrew's in North Oxford. The point is simply this. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. I don't know about you, but can you kind of hear that? It's like the heartbeat of the living God. 
for God so loved, for God so loved the world. We're going to watch a DVD. It's uh, uh, some of you may find it's a little bit American, but uh, those of you from the states will love it, and others of us will uh, make allowances for the transatlantic differences. And I hope we will hear that heartbeat for God so loved the world.